All right, welcome back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening today. And today is a really, really special uh, interview that I'm doing this morning. Uh, so we're going to be talking mostly about, well, we're going to be talking about refugees. We're going to be talking about second language acquisition. Uh, we're going to be talking about ELL. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting. So uh, here on the other side, I have Nicole. And I'm going to let her introduce herself. And, you know, she's going to tell us what she does. Uh, and, you know, and stuff like that. So I'm just going to let her talk. All right. So uh, good morning and good good afternoon, right, from where you are. Nicole. Yes. Yes, good afternoon from the Middle East. Um, so my name is Nicole, like you said. I am from uh, rural Missouri, New Franklin, Missouri, small town. Uh, I graduated from University of Missouri in 2016 with three bachelor's degrees in biology, psychology, and linguistics. Um, I then spent the next three and a half years working at the Refugee and Immigration Services in Columbia, Missouri, um, as a job developer and office analyst. Um, during that time, I also spent two years teaching English online to children in China. Um, and since then, uh, in January, I moved to the Middle East, where I am a full-time Arabic student and a part-time English teacher, where I am now living my life here. So, yeah, it is 6 o'clock here, uh, where it's morning over there. So, wow, glad so to be here with you guys. That's that's amazing. <laughs> So you had three degrees? I did. I did have three bachelor's degrees. Three bachelor's. So, yes. sorry, guys. I, you know, I had to tell you this. I don't really know Nicole. She she knows my wife. And, you know, we, we really haven't talked before. So this is my first time talking to Nicole. So that's why I'm <laughs> I'm impressed <laughs> by all, you know, her credentials. So that's great. Uh, you know, my, my major is in music actually and my uh, master's is in yellow education so uh i but but i, I i've been always interested in linguistics so i didn't mm. know you studied linguistics that that's cool i did i mean you <laughs> I know did. i'm more like a lay person interested in linguistics that you know i'm not <laughs> i'm not a, an expert or something like that so <laughs> that's gonna be great all right um okay so Nicole, I know that, uh, so first of all, I want you to share your experience with any ELL uh, people, students. Uh, you, you said that you were teaching um, English online, right? So mm -hmm. we consider those students ELLs, basically, right? Mm -hmm. you, you didn't consider them as EFL, like English, as a foreign language? Um, I don't really, I don't know the complete difference in okay. uh, terminology there, right. um, but I would probably consider them ELL. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, okay, could you share your experience uh, with those ELL? Yeah, um, so like I said, I did two years online of teaching English, mm -hmm. um, and so these were children ages mm -hmm. 4 to 14 who were living in China. Okay. Um, I think I had one student who's living in Hong Kong. Um, and so 
this the program was set up for me already, and I would go on every morning and teach them. Um, mm-hmm. It was a really cool opportunity. They were very, very most of them were very dedicated. They did it after their school program, so they would do school all day, um, mm-hmm. and then at night they would take several hours of English classes, um, which is when I would be teaching them. Um, and so they were. I mean, some of them were rowdy, but majority of them came to class eager to learn, ready to learn. Um, and honestly, I had a ton of fun with them. Oh, they man. were uh, they were a great rowdy group. Um, all the refugees I worked with, they were I would consider them ELL. They were all in English classes. Right. I wasn't teaching their English classes, uh-huh. um, but I was uh-huh. working with them on a regular basis. So none of them English was their first language. Um, right. Majority of them did not speak any English, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so I had a lot of uh, experiences with uh, figuring out how to interact with people who did not speak my language and I did not speak their language. Um, a lot of mining, a lot of Google Translate when possible, um, mm. and then a lot of learning a few mm. words in their language to say hello or greet them, um, and and then just moving past that. Um, it was really cool um, in my position because I was able to see how a person's skills are not limited by their language, that I worked with many, many incredible people who, although they didn't speak English, they had so many skills to offer, they, right. and I was able to help them get jobs, not mm. based on their language abilities, but their their mental and their um, physical abilities were not limited yeah. by their ability to speak English, that they came, I worked with engineers and I worked with teachers and farmers and people who brought a wide variety of skills from their countries that they lived in that they were forced to flee um and although and many of them spoke multiple languages um English just wasn't one of them um but a majority of them especially your African clients would speak three four five six languages Mm -hmm. before English um and so they came with just so much knowledge and it was very eye-opening to me to see people who they weren't they didn't allow their just, they were learning English, but that didn't limit them from what they were able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they were very capable and eager to, to make a better life for themselves. So I was really encouraged by, by my clients that I worked with there. Um, and even the students I work with here in the Middle East that I'm teaching English to, they are, all of them mm-hmm. are either mm-hmm. working full-time or they're taking full-time college classes. And this is on, on top of that. And so they you can tell that learning another language is a priority to them, that they, it is something that's important. It's something that's valued. Um, that, that is really impressive to me as yeah. someone who was not raised speaking another language and wasn't really, I didn't really see the value in learning another language growing up until I got older. And so seeing that quality in people has been really encouraging for me to see how, how they see it as a necessity and how they're willing to put effort into it outside of their already really busy schedule. Um, so yeah, that was, and I saw that from the little five-year-old who was taking English after an eight-hour school day, um, and then the the families who are working full time, um, and then coming afterwards to learn English. It's very encouraging and um, really pushing me to see what what else I need to do <laughs> to keep up with these people. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it is impressive to um, to work with these type of students, you know. So I work mm-hmm. with uh, a lot of refugees and. Kansas City, actually. So um, they they speak, yeah, I would say most of them speak at least two languages, and then English yeah. would be their third language, you know. So they, I don't know, it seems like they are, I wouldn't say it is easier, 
but uh you know but they have these um what are called um i mean like they can handle to have another language in their brain because they they are used to it which is kind mm -hmm. of interesting you know so um i have students uh from well i have hispanic students and for them maybe at the beginning it's a little bit harder uh oh, but you know they 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 help themselves with a lot of you know um learning cognates so that that helps a lot for them so and you know english i wouldn't say it's not as is not as as different as i mean it is it is not as different as arabic if you compare to spanish you know so we have like yeah. similarities you know so when i'm when i start teaching ell in africa for example um because because work um, I'm sorry before working here in missouri i was in colorado and i, I worked with only hispanic ells so that was kind of easy for me to uh, you know to teach in the sense of you know i was not aware of like the vocabulary the way that they they read you know so when i started working mm -hmm. in kansas city I remember that I was, I took for granted that all my students understood that we read from left to right. And, you know, since yeah. I, I was teaching music, it, it is the same. You need to read the music from left to right. And then one day I noticed that one of my students, she was, she was doing this rhythm, but I noticed she was doing from the right to the left. And she is from, I think she's from Kenya, I think. Mm. And she speaks Arabic. I was thinking, mm. what? Yeah. You know, and then I, I that moment was like uh, those moments that you are like, what <laughs> What am I doing? You know, I'm, I'm not even thinking the way that they think. You know, I'm taking for granted a lot of stuff. So then I, yeah. I remember. So now when I'm teaching something, you know, like reading notes and stuff like that, I have to tell them, oh, you know, just like the same in English, we read from left to right. And it's always good to know, you know, how they learn. So anyway, um, okay, so you, you're online. I'm interested in your online classes. So so is that is that a job that some of uh, college, you know, some college students can get? Mm -hmm. Yeah, my English online. So the, I taught for two programs, um, VIP Kid and GoGo Kid. They're the two largest online English teaching programs. Um, both teach children in China. For both of them, you do need to have a bachelor's degree. Um, okay. So you um, you don't have to have a teaching degree, but you have to have some teaching experience. And so in college, mm -hmm. I um, I tutored for four years, math okay. and science and reading in uh, a local uh, middle school. And so okay. that counted, even though I, I do not have a teaching degree, that counted right. as my teaching experience. But if you do have a bachelor's degree or, um, or, or and, sorry, a bachelor's degree and some teaching experience mm -hmm. or tutoring experience, then you are able to get those jobs. Um, there used to be other companies. You did not need a bachelor's degree. Um, but China has recently passed laws that require every single teacher to have a bachelor's degree. Oh. And so there are, there are other companies that teach to other countries. Mm -hmm. They're very, very small. 
um, and they do not offer very many hours. The pay is not very good. Um, and I, I don't personally know any of those. Uh-huh. Majority of online teaching companies are teaching children in China or in Asia. In, um, oh. in Asia. Okay. That's the most because they really, really value English. So mm. if you have any students who are getting their second bachelor's or they're in a master's and they have a bachelor's degree, then they're they great programs. They pay very well. Oh. Um, they, they pay excellent. <laughs> I actually really? made more there than my full-time job. Um, <laughs> um, nice. and so yeah, it's a, and they hire you pretty quickly. Um, they, I believe their business period is in the fall. Um, uh-huh. so like August to December is a business period, but I was booked full time the whole, the whole time. Really? So, um, I mean, I guess it depends on the type of teacher you are, but yeah, there's definitely lots of opportunities if you do have a bachelor's degree in some teaching experience. Oh, that's, that's really cool. So, um, well, you can hear that, guys. And if you, uh, you know, if you are about to be done with school and, you know, and most of my students are in teaching as their major, some sort of teaching and stuff. So I think that's that's a great opportunity. So anyway, um, that's a really that's that's really good to know that. OK, so I, I'm really interested on your work with refugees so you you mm-hmm. told that you were you you were working in this agency is mm-hmm. right okay in yeah. columbia missouri yeah. right okay yeah. so um okay so h- how does it work like um when when united states is getting refugees so yeah. um how, how do people can come to united states from yeah. other countries yeah. So I'll just, before I start, I'm going to, I could talk about refugees all day. So I'm going to try and make okay. it not too fine. long. Uh-huh. Um, so just for quick clarification, a refugee is someone, um, a legal definition of someone who fled their country to a second country and then was taken from that country to a third country. So that In the United States, that is what that status means. Okay. So a refugee fled their country. For okay. example, they fled Somalia mm-hmm. to Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And then they were taken from, and so they're then taken to the U.S. Then they are called a refugee, not an asylee. That's just a difference in terms. Okay. I can talk about asylees too, but just wanted to make that clarification for anyone who's. Okay, interested. so can, can I stop you right there? Just just yeah. because I want to clarify. Okay, so um, I have students that they are from Somalia. They they went to Kenya. They stay there mm-hmm. for two three years, and then. They move here to United States, so that's a refugee. Um, if it depends on if they if they if they immigrate to the U.S. If they chose to move here, uh-huh. then they are an immigrant. They are just an immigrant. If they fled Somalia due yeah, to persecution, uh-huh. yeah, a, a refugee has to flee their home country due to flee. persecution from race, religion, um, political okay. affiliation, gotcha. and then they flee. And then, if they are chosen by the United Nations as a refugee. And they come here. That's the refugee status. Oh, okay. So they cannot come straight to United States. Let, let, let's say that you know they're having persecution in Somalia, and you know, and then they can do it from there instead of going so, to another country. No. So a refugee, it has to be someone who has fled their country, gone right. to a second country, mm-hmm. and they have to register with the United Nations High Commissioner for mm-hmm. Refugees right. or the U, the UN HCR. Um, so in the second country, they have to register with the UN. When they register with the UN, um, mm-hmm. they then undergo several interviews, which takes 
years um, yeah. to do mostly. Right. Um, and after that time, then they're just waiting. A refugee cannot choose which country they go to. Only the United Nations can choose. Uh, each country decides how many refugees they want. So the United right. States sets a cap. We right. want this many refugees. Mm-hmm. And the United States chooses those refugees. The refugees do not choose. Mm-hmm. They can give preference. They can say, well, I have family in Missouri, in America. Can I go there? Um, but, oh. again, they don't get to choose. Only the, 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 UN the UN chooses, and then they give them to the country, and then the country proceeds. Oh. So once they're chosen, if only 1% of refugees are ever resettled. So there's 65 million displaced mm-hmm. people worldwide. Of that, about 26 million are refugees. So 26 million people are living as refugees outside their home country, mm-hmm. and only 1% is resettled worldwide. Right. So less than 1%. Okay. Like, very small number. So once they're chosen, so if the U.S. says, okay, I want this refugee, mm-hmm. then they have to under, for the, I only know the U.S. is system, not other okay. countries. Every country right. has their own system. Mm-hmm. Once they're chosen by the U.S., they undergo a whole other set of interviews they undergo five different background screenings by five different federal agencies, such as the FBI, Homeland Security, um, Department of State. Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember the other two, but five federal agencies are all five separate background checks. They mm-hmm. do biometric checks, and mm-hmm. they do interviews separate from the family, and then every single family member has to do with their own interview. E- even the so little kids? you have kids? five children? Yes. Um, and if anything is said along the way that would contradictory with um, it can stop the whole process and if the process is stopped it's very difficult to start it again um, for example I had a friend who his sister's child was born in Ethiopia had never been to Somalia was Somali to their, right. their parents were Somali but never been there um, and this child did not know the capital of Somalia did not know because he'd never been there um, and gave contradictory information because it was a child mm-hmm. um, and this stopped the whole process and she was not able to come, and she is still living in a refugee camp. So there are very, um, they're very strict, and everything has to match up. They talk to neighbors, they talk to friends, they talk to all for individual interviews and with the whole family interview. If anything is contradicting, the whole app- right. the whole application is stopped, not move forward, yeah. and you stay in the refugee. And so, if you pass all of those, then you undergo a health screening. No one is allowed to come to the U.S. with any type of communicable diseases. Um, so if they have active TB, for example, they're not allowed to come to the U.S. It's not permitted. Um, any mm-hmm. type of communicable diseases, they're held back. Um, after they do the health screening, they then do a cultural orientation, um, mm-hmm. introducing them to the U.S. culture. And then they have to take out a travel loan to fly to the U.S., mm-hmm. which they have to pay back after three years. So every refugee is required to pay back for their travel after three years. Oh, wait. They're required so, to- so they fly? Right, yes. they fly, but they they mm-hmm. need to pay pay it back. Yeah. It's oh, so loan. it's not free. Yeah. No, no. Oh, see. Um, so every single. <laughs> I, I, you yeah. know, I, I've been working. No, seriously, I've been working for years. You know, and I I, I thought I knew some stuff, <laughs> but this is this is new for me. I didn't yeah, know they had yeah. to pay back. They do, yeah, and for so for a big family, you can imagine flying from Africa. You know, their plane tickets are probably eight, nine thousand dollars. They have three years minimum or maximum to pay that back. That the, after six months they have to start paying. Like any like it's like a any type of loan. After uh-huh. six months they're required to start and then they have to send in payment every month to pay it off. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so when they, <laughs> yeah, it's expensive. What, what, what um, if they don't pay? I'm not sure. The okay. inter- the it's ION is the one who does it. Okay. And mm-hmm. the International or- Organization of Migration, mm-hmm. they are the organization that they plan all the trips. Mm-hmm. So once the refugee is approved through all right. the other processes, right. then the ION sets up their plane tickets. They they schedule everything. They meet them at the airport. You know the connecting flights. They take and then they meet them. They get them to the correct airport, mm-hmm. um, and they handle all of that. IOM does. So the refugee doesn't have to handle that. They just have to pay back the loan for all of the flights at the end. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's that's so new for me. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so so wait. Yeah, go ahead. It's not like a... I mean, I don't know. It just... I mean, that... I don't know. I mean, they... So that's why it is important for families to get a job. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, when a refugee comes... Um, And there are, so in the United States, there are nine different federal resettlement agencies. Mm-hmm. So these are federal programs that have smaller branches that are doing the resettling. So the mm-hmm. program that I worked out of mm-hmm. um, was the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. They are the largest program in the United States. They do about 40% of the resettlement. Oh, um, wow. And I worked, their branch was Catholic Charities of Central and Northern Missouri, okay. was the branch that was in Columbia. Mm-hmm. was the branch I worked mm-hmm. under. There is a different branch or a different federal agency. I believe it's USCRI that works United States. I don't remember all the acronyms. USCRI works in Kansas City and St. Louis and Springfield as well. And then there's an additional agency that works in Kansas City. There's mm-hmm. two agencies that work in Kansas City. So each of these federal agencies do have slightly different, um, some things that are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, all the federal requirements are the same for all the agencies. So when a refugee comes, they have three to six months mm-hmm. of utility and rent assistance. After six months, no family receives any assistance. Okay, so, so they only have six months. Six max. Most families only receive three months. Okay. Three months is the federal amount. Okay. Our agency received an additional grant that would provide additional three extra months for certain families, depending mm-hmm. on if they met the requirements for that grant. So that was a special grant. Not all programs have that grant. Um, Our program did, so we could, for some families, got up to six months. Majority got only three months of utility and rent assistance. Mm-hmm. After that time, they are re- responsible for all their own bills. Everything has to be paid. Um, we have, the federal government provides no money after three to six months mm-hmm. for every refugee. Mm-hmm. That is why it was, my job as a job developer was to help them find jobs. And it was essential oh. that they found jobs very quickly and jobs that could provide for their family. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you were helping them to find a job. Yes. Yes. I was for, oh. yeah, I was a job developer for the mm-hmm. entire three and a half years I was there. Mm-hmm. So I worked with refugees that were new, mm-hmm. helping new refugees find jobs. I'd helped with um, refugees who've been there for up to five years. After five years, no refugee received any assistance at all. Oh. Um, like no oh. job assistance, no, um, uh-huh. no ELL classes, no, Um, nothing, no case management. After five years, they received that the the program is finished. So mm-hmm. I could work with clients up to five years if they wanted a better job, if they wanted help um, getting rolling into college, if they mm-hmm. wanted help, um, you know, improving their interviewing skills, things mm-hmm. like that. I would work with those clients as well. If I, I work with high school students mm-hmm. at times who want would want to get an after school job right. um, and help them right. find employment as well. So any refugee in the that was there five years or less, 
I was working with I was working with them to find employment and working with employers to try and you know create partnerships um, liaisons between us and different companies that were in need of workers. Uh, I was connecting them throughout that time as well. Oh yeah. wow, that that's a really great job. You know, I would say it's very satisfying. But I I bet you have some obstacles when whenever you were helping them. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share um, those? I would say, yeah, the the biggest obstacles were probably English was always an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, once I would be able to create a partnership with a uh, employer, they were less concerned about the language. Mm-hmm. There were several big factories that once once they knew we would provide clients who were willing to work, they cared a little less about the language and more about the skills. Mm-hmm. But in general, language is very important in order for them to progress, especially in their jobs. So they mm-hmm. may be able to get a, a, a basic job, you know, a production job, but they're, it's going to be really hard for them to advance in that job to be able to make enough to continue to provide for their family uh, if they don't have the English skills. So English was definitely the, the biggest barrier. I would say the second biggest barrier was transportation. Uh, where I, I, And I know this is a barrier across the U.S. I've spoken with lots of job developers, um, especially in medium-sized cities mm-hmm. like Columbia. Uh, larger cities tend to have much better public transportation, and so they do seem to have less issues. Most factories in cities are built on the outsides of the cities, and okay. most clients work at factories. And so because of that, transportation was a huge issue. There, our city had very, very poor public transportation mm-hmm. um, just because we didn't have funding for it. It wasn't available. And so that made it very difficult for clients to be able to get, even if they could get a job, they'd have no way to get to that job right. because there was not a bus. There was, not, mm-hmm. there was no resources to be able to get them there. Uh, another big resource was daycare. Daycare is very, very expensive for anyone <laughs> in Missouri. Right. Uh, so... That was a huge, and most of our clients came, were almost all of them were families. It was very rare we would get single clients. Um, if we got single clients, it was a single mother. Um, so it was very rare to get single clients. They are normally families. Okay. And so a lot of single parent families. And so the mom would have to work or the dad would have to work and there'd be no one to watch the children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was definitely a huge barrier as well as there was. We would work with trying to get, you know, the elderly clients to babysit, um, <laughs> try and find unique ways to, to have the parents work opposite shifts. Yeah. Uh, but that continued to be a, a barrier as well. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I, I know that, you know, my students' parents, you know, so I, so far I know, I'm not sure for, about all of them, but I know they have jobs and stuff like that, so... Yeah, but uh, having like right now, it it, it can be a problem because uh, you know, so the the little kids need to stay home with you know with their uh, siblings, and you know nobody's watching them. You know, so it's pretty hard. And uh, or maybe they 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 they're not working, and they're not getting any money now, right? So. That's that's a tough situation. So and and stuff that I would say, and even for me, you know, even if I'm uh, an outsider, uh, I'm I was not aware of it. You know, I was I was not aware of it. So that's that's interesting. Okay, so um, okay, so when they move to United States, do they are they allowed to bring 
personal stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, most of them will bring, uh, I mean, we'd have some clients who show up with one suitcase. Um, mm -hmm. And then some clients would show up with a little bit more. It just, it did depend on how long they were in the refugee camp previously. Mm -hmm. um, if they, you know, we have a lot of uh, African clients, uh, Congolese clients who had spent 20 years in the refugee camp. Mm -hmm. So they had accumulated quite a bit of stuff um, living mm -hmm. in the refugee camp um, because of that. Refugees who maybe had only been in the camp for five years, they would bring a little bit less stuff um, just because they hadn't really You know, they just left their country and, and come, and so they just didn't have as much to bring. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it was not – if I – if, you know, if my whole family moved, we would have a lot of luggage, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. whereas, you know, we would see families of eight who would have eight – well, eight suitcases for eight people. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they definitely were not bringing a ton of stuff from back home. They were bringing mostly clothes. Um, yeah. And then if they had them, their their personal documents, which sometimes they had, sometimes they didn't. It depended on the, the situation they were fleeing from, if they're able to get all of their documents. So those are ma mainly the things that they would bring with them. All right. Um, okay, so what have you seen that helps people assimilate best in these situations? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, I would say working. Honestly, when when they start working, they they are forced to speak English. They're forced to listen to English, um, and they're they're able to to get to meet lots of different people. That is one of the reasons. Something I teach them in my would teach them in my employment orientation is how vital it is to get into a job. Um, and not get not just hang out with people <laughs> who speak mm -hmm. the same language as you all the time, um, right. which can be really helpful and very comforting as someone who's learning another language right now. It's really nice to be with people who speak English and not always be around people who speak Arabic because yeah. my brain can't handle it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but it is essential to learning the language if you immerse yourself in it. And so working a job, you're there 40 hours a week. Um, that, that is a great opportunity to One, allow the opportunity to share your culture and learn from their culture. So I see assimilation as less of giving up something of yourself, of giving up everything about who you are, mm -hmm. but instead offering mm -hmm. that as a, offering that to other people and showing them, this is who I am. I want to learn who you are. Let's share this relationship. And so that's something that I think uh, is really vital in assimilation is allowing yourself to To offer up who you are and not just leave everything about who you are behind because cultures and and identities are very very important and they offer a lot and so I you know I would not tell my I would tell my clients please speak English like go to your jobs and speak English but don't be afraid to invite your coworker over for a cultural meal you know so keeping part of your keeping that part of yourself and being willing to share it being open to right. sharing who you are right. and to learning about other people Um, I think is the best way to assimilate, like finding a way to to create those relationships because relationships are, are the way that you're going to learn the fastest about the language and about the culture and be able to, to feel like you're, you're at home. Um, what type of refugees does Missouri get the most? Um, I, it, it, it has changed. The, because of the political situation, it, it has changed the types of refugees we get. 
So when I first started three and a half years ago, we were getting um, a majority Somalian, Eritrean, um, Congolese, and um, Iraqi. Uh, and this is, I know quite a bit about Central Missouri. I know um, Camp Bain, St. Louis get a little bit different populations. Camp Bay gets quite a few Syrians, a lot of Syrians, I believe. Mm. Um, and St. Louis has, they have a lot. I don't know everything they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but in recent years, um, we've gotten a lot of Congolese, probably like 80% Congolese. Uh, mm. So that is Democratic Republic of Congo, not right. Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. Um, Eritrean, a lot of Eritrean. We also get quite a few Ukrainian refugees who are all resettled in, in Sedalia. Yeah. So all Ukrainian refugees are for our office handles them as does Kansas City, and those are all resettled in Sedalia. Um, so if you go to Sedalia, you'll see lots yeah. of right. Yeah, no, I, I I was amazed that one day I went to the doctor and everybody was speaking. I was thinking <laughs> that sounds like Russian, you know, when I was there, and I was like, why? <laughs> Go ahead. No, go ahead. They, um, I think, you know, they started getting resettled there and they, the Ukrainians are big farmers. Um, they, and so I think mm. they love the, the small town feel of Sedalia mm. and there's, and, and they're very good at taking care of each other. And so mm. when they would come, even though Sedalia is an hour and a half away from Columbia, an hour and a half away from Kansas City, our agencies were not able to provide as much assistance the families would take care of each other. So oh. they were finding themselves jobs. They were enrolling themselves in schools. They were they were helping each other with um, social services and with getting mm. apartments and with all the assistance that our office would normally provide that we would we would do all the requirements. All the requirements were always met, but all the extra things, the, the families took care of for themselves. And they knew when they were coming in that they would not get all the extra things if they chose to go to Sedalia, but they wanted to be by family. And so they would, they just kept going there. So now we just keep resettling them there. Uh, and in the past year, we've gotten a lot. Like I think 20, 2018, we got the most. So many Ukrainian refugees came and they all went to Sedalia and they're all thriving because they all, they just take care of each other really, really well there. So then these uh, Ukrainian uh, refugees, so when they came, uh, they knew that there were some people in Sedalia? Yeah. So all of our Ukrainian clients, Uh, have family in Sedalia. They actually come under a different visa. So they're still refugees, Mm -hmm. but they have, um, I don't know quite, I don't do, did not do a lot of immigration work, Uh uh, like specific immigration paperwork. So I don't know as much about it, Mm -hmm. but I know that they came under a little bit of a different visa. It was typically religious persecution uh, in Ukraine. was typically, not all of them, I don't think, but the majority of them were were persecuted for different religious regions. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they received a specific visa um and that that visa had to be tied to a family member so they they could only come if they had a family member no one can come through that visa without a family member Mm. so because of that they they all have family there um Mm. and they all are taken care of by their family oh okay so that's cool that they they uh you know they they take care of each other They do. It's a beautiful community. It's really, really inspiring to see and to work with the the individuals in Sedalia. They always have a special place in my heart. Oh, nice. That's great. Yeah, I I had um, a student from Moldova in Kansas City. And uh, yeah, she, well, they they moved here like, I think, seven months ago, something like that, with no English. So very, very uh polite student like very smart 
Uh, and mom told me, you know, because she, she, I was actually trying to learn some Romanian. <laughs> so when I was talking to mom, she told me that they, they had some family in, in, in Sedalia. So I yeah. guess that's kind of like, that's why, right? Because yeah. all that part from that Eastern Europe, Europe, yeah, uh, they, uh, mm -hmm. maybe that they, they share the same, uh, cultural stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. that's that's great. All right, so um, okay, so I'm gonna ask you a couple a couple questions that are a little bit um, uh, I don't know, I they're gonna be political, you know. But <laughs> I'm not into into. I talk about polit politics with my friends. I'm not really like I'm. I don't have any side. <laughs> I'm on the side of people, actually. That's that's my side Amen. right now. So anyway, all right. So um, what do Americans need to understand about refugees? Okay, so right now, um, see, I don't I don't want to talk anything. I don't want to say anything against our president. Uh, I respect him, and you know, I, I truly believe that I have, even if I'm, you know, I don't know if you know, but I'm Mexican, so you know, and everybody used to say. A year ago, oh, he said this double Mexican, you know, I, and the way that I, he said it, I didn't really feel that it was, uh, like, anyway, I'm not, I'm not going to explain that. So I'm just trying to say that I'm Mexican and I still feel, and I believe that I need to respect him as my authority, you know, just, uh, in Mexico, we have a lot of, um, uh, you know, our presidents are not the best. You know, I mean, if, if if I compare, you know, Mexican president with Trump, <laughs> I don't know. I, I can tell you that Mr. Uh, Mr. Trump is not, it's not as bad as the other ones. <laughs> That's my opinion as a Mexican. And I think I'm, I'm fine if I say that. But anyway, so um, because of the stuff that we hear and that um you know um people saying oh they're coming to our country to destroy our country and stuff like that and i understand why people are saying that i'm not i don't agree but i understand uh what do we need to understand you know what do america need to understand about refugees yeah um the first thing i'll say is refugees are just people They're just people who happen to have a really bad situation happen to them. Um, really traumatic things have happened to them, leading them to this place. They don't choose to leave. They don't choose to leave their country because they want to. That no one would leave their country unless it's unsafe for them to stay there. And so the idea that refugees want to come in and infiltrate America is just untrue. Refugees want to live in peace. That's what they want. By definition, a refugee is someone who's seeking peace. Right. They're seeking peace. And that's why they're leaving the violence is to try and get to peace. That's all they want is that for themselves and that for their family is peace. Um, and so that's something I just think forefront is, is I take the same stance as you. I'm on the side of, of mankind, mm -hmm. you know, that we all have different struggles. And, and sometimes we are given way more of an abundance. And right. when we're given an abundance and someone else is giving way less, I think that that means that we need to find a way to share it with them. Mm -hmm. And so I was incredibly blessed to be born in America in a country with amazing, beautiful freedoms that I am so thankful for. Whereas other people were born in a place of with little freedom and with violence and with war. Mm -hmm. um, 
and they're just seeking that peace. So that would be the first thing I'd share. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is refugees come and they work jobs that Americans won't work. Uh, I saw this as a job developer. I worked with employers who could not fill their positions, who would wait months and months and go through interviews and would tell me over and over again how they hire people and they just quit and how they hire people and they quit. Refugees aren't coming and taking jobs that Americans want. They're taking the bottom low jobs, working in 12-hour shifts in a cold factory, working in dishwashers, working as housekeepers, working... You know, in farms and landscaping, they're working positions that can't get filled, that need to get filled, that are a necessity for our life, but aren't being filled. Mm. And employers are attempting to fill them and unsuccessfully Mm. and are telling me, I need workers and no one will stay. Mm. And so I think there's a really big misconception that refugees want to steal jobs from Americans when it's simply not true. Refugees come and they they work any job that they can find. And right. the jobs that they can find are the lowest of the low mm-hmm. that can't get filled. And so right. those are the jobs that, that they're choosing to take. Um, and so that would be the second thing that I think is really important for people mm-hmm. to know, that, that refugees aren't coming. And, and, you know, yeah, and a lot of them are very well educated. You know, like I said, they're doctors and engineers and teachers, and they're working as a housekeeper because that's the job that they can get. And they and they are willing to do whatever it takes to provide for their family, yeah. even if it means laying down their own their own credentials. Um, but I also think there's there it's important for us to not take away the dignity or the humanity of other people. That I think it's very common to see refugees as the other, mm-hmm. as someone different, mm-hmm. and that takes they've already left their home and had to leave their dignity behind because of the situation that they're in. And I think it's really important for us to not try and see them as other because they're different or because they have different experiences, but to see them as as people, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But they have dignity, they have worth, and that doesn't mean that they're all perfect or they're all super nice all the time or they're all not going to mess up. And it also doesn't mean that they're all, you know, doctors. Mm-hmm. And all of them aren't doctors who are who deserve to come. Mm-hmm. That they they're all just people, and it's not about deciding which one's better. Because as people, we don't get to decide which person is better. We don't get to decide I'm better because I was born in America. Mm-hmm. I'm a human. They're right. humans, and I think keeping that at our forefront in our mind, mm-hmm. kind of, there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be differences. It's always going to be hard to work with people who are different from you because you see the world differently. It doesn't make it easy to to accept these things, mm-hmm. but it does help us start at a different place. Starting at the place of we're all one, we're all part of mankind. We're human first and foremost before you're a refugee. A refugee define them as a person. Mm-hmm. It doesn't define who they are and what what makes them them. Right. So I think that's just right. probably the, my biggest, um, most important thing is is seeing them as people and starting at that place. And you're going to have problems and issues still, but if you start there and you give them the respect and dignity that every person deserves, then move forward from there. Well, that's uh, yeah, that's great, yeah. and I think um, you're totally right about that. Um, uh, sometimes we might see uh, um, people from other countries as different than us and maybe you know just um sometimes we we don't when i 
used to see people that look different than us. I would say that's, you know, and I don't know. I it, it could happen in not only in the United States, it could happen in other countries. But yeah, I, I was going to ask you this question, but I think you already answered it. I'm going to ask you either way. So there are people who see refugees as enemies. How can we change that? You kind of yeah. told, told me. You know, if we, so if we start, so the first step is to see them as human beings, right? That's yeah. That's basically the... Uh, yeah, because I think when you see them as other, it's easy to sit in our in our comfortable homes where we're safe and when we're living our life, it doesn't mean your life is easy mm -hmm. just because you're an American. There's tons of Americans who don't have easy lives, right. but it's easy to stay in America and to think of that person over there and to associate them with the war that they're fleeing from. Mm -hmm. That just because they're Syrian doesn't mean they agree with everything that Syria is doing. Right. It doesn't mean that they agree with the people that are, If anything, it means they disagree with them because mm -hmm. they left. Because the people who are fleeing Syria don't agree with the war happening there. The people fleeing Somalia don't agree with the war happening there. That's why they got out. They're just citizens who got caught in the middle of extremists and power and mm -hmm. power grabs and, and politics and governments. Mm -hmm. And they're just the normal people, which is what most of us are. Most of us aren't top politicians. Most of us aren't you know, at the very top CEO, most of us are just normal people trying to do our, trying to live our life, mm -hmm. trying to buy our food, trying to provide for our families. That's what most of us are. That's majority of America is that the, the middle class or even the lower class, but people who are just trying to get by. And that is what refugees are. Refugees aren't the, the governor or the, the top of, you know, the leader of, of the country. They are just normal people who are caught in the middle of all of that madness. Mm -hmm. And so, Seeing that and knowing you shouldn't associate a person with the the things that are happening in their country, just gotcha. like you shouldn't associate me with if you disagree with something that happens in America. That doesn't mean I'm right. You know that right. I, I don't take that on myself. Mm -hmm. You know, so we shouldn't give that mm -hmm. and try and put that on someone else because yes. of the nationality, because of their religion, because right. of their political affiliation, whatever it is that that they may have. Um, you shouldn't try and put that on them when, before you even get to know them. The best way you can not see them as an enemy is to actually talk to them and actually get to know them. Sit down right. and have a meal with them. Mm -hmm. Because when you do that and you listen to their stories and you hear their insights, your, your whole perception starts to change. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you see them as, oh, this is, he was a farmer. He, he understands my life. He knows right. exactly what I do every day. He did this every day. He just wants to provide for his kids. All he wants is his kids to have a safe bed to sleep in. When you can see that, and you can see that they're just like me and you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they may look different. Yeah, they may have a different faith. Yeah, they may have a different country that they come from. But they're just like me and you, just trying to live their life, just trying to provide. So, you know, sit down with them, talk with them, have an open mind going in, and trying to lay down your own ideas of what you think they are, laying down your own ideas of what you've been told your whole life because as someone who was raised in rural Missouri I know what it's like to have stereotypes of people who are different from me mm. I was raised in a town of a thousand people who everyone looked like me talked like me believed like me mm. and it wasn't until I went to college and worked with refugees that I met people who were very different from me and yeah sometimes that means you disagree 
But more than that, it means that your view of the world grows. Your perception of the world grows. That that just our view is not always right. Sometimes taking another view allows it to grow a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. Sometimes it shrinks back again and then you have to grow it again, like two steps forward and one step back. But if you allow yourself to get to know them, talk with them, you hear their stories and their ideas and their their thought processes and why they do what they do, then your world is going to grow a little bit bigger. And your ideas and your ability to think and to, to act and react is going to grow and grow and grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. All right, thanks, Nicole. We're going to stop right there. Um, thanks for everything that you share with us in this episode. And guys, we have more. We, I am thinking that we are going to have maybe two more uh, episodes with Nicole. So just stay tuned because uh, you're going to hear more uh, from Nicole and her experience. We're going to continue talking about refugees and then we're going to talk about uh, what she's doing, uh, where she is at. Okay, so take care and I'll see you guys next time.